Welcome to the podcast of The Plague Year. I'm your host, Terry Shoemaker. Podcast for The Plague Year is a deeper dive into contributions made to the Journal of The Plague Year, a project of Arizona State University. Available online, the archive allows anyone to submit artifacts regarding life during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mining the many photos, videos, reflections, and other submissions to the archive, this podcast, Podcast of The Plague Year, selects some interesting topics and explores the world of the pandemic life. Join us as we journey across the world to see how the pandemic has influenced the daily lives of people everywhere. In the United States, the pandemic is political. This becomes obvious when working through the contributions to the COVID-19 archive. Numerous forms of graffiti and art contributions reveal how governmental responses are perceived by many as politically motivated. During the pandemic, there have been protests across the country regarding the reopening of businesses and religious institutions. Although we eventually get to the question, what does protest look like when you can't congregate with a bunch of people? Let's begin with public protests where congregating does happen. You see what the cops are doing? We are free. Yes. We are free. Yes, we are. We only give it up if we, if we let them take it. Only if they let, we let them. The audio clip that you just heard takes place in Orange, California, and was contributed by one of the Journal of the Plague Year curators, Joey Dorian. As a curator, Joey took the opportunity to record a short video of an organized protest in California in connection with a liberate movement that has garnered national media attention. This is a great place to begin, and I was able to speak with Joey to get his perspectives on the protest. Specifically, I wanted to talk with you because as I was exploring the Journal of the Plague Year archive, one of the things that has really jumped out to me is this idea of protest that has been broadcasted across the media under the guise of liberate and some other, you know, kind of tropes. But you had uploaded personally a video in California of a protest there. And I was hoping you could just tell me a bit about it. As the pandemic has worn on, as the stay-at-home order in the state of California has worn on, there has been unrest over the severity of the orders that Governor Newsom has put out and the inability of people to work, to earn an income, to, to earn a living. I would say that overall, this protest, which happened on April 27th, this was about 40 days after the initial outset of the stay-at-home order for California, which began on March 17th. And this protest, I would say, was was fairly small. The population of Orange is about 140,000. The video in question is taking place in the central plaza in the city. And it was a couple of hours, I believe. I recorded and was present for the first probably half hour. And it was a an interesting experience, I think, to see just the the number of people. The things that stuck out to me was that number of people were not wearing masks, any type of protective gear, social distancing was not practiced, and there just seemed to be a general disregard, if you will, for following any of the safety guidelines or any of the recommendations that have been put out. And during my time sitting there, I was in a car driving around the circle, trying to maintain social distance, and just noticed that there was an even spread, I think, of people doing something similar to what I was doing. There was people that were engaging in discussion 
discussion about why the protesters were present. And then there also was a large grouping of people that were voicing their support either by honking, by shouting words of encouragement. Yeah. So in watching the video, that's a couple of things that stand out is obviously you can hear just what you said, the, the horn honking of various people. Were the, the, the protesters, were they directing their attention towards people in vehicles who are driving by? I mean, that's, that's the way it feels as I watch the video. Is, is that the case? So the the location that they chose, I believe, was for that purpose. The two main streets in my city run through this central plaza. I wouldn't say necessarily that they were specifically pontificating towards people driving by directly. I think that it was a much more peaceful protest in that regard than what we've seen over the past couple of weeks. I think it was just a simple act of people are feeling cooped up. They want to go and share their opinion, share their thoughts as to what is currently happening. And they wanted to to see if people would support them. You know, who's the, the in, intended audience of their message? I think that they're trying to specifically target uh, people that are dissatisfied with either being laid off, losing a source of income, losing their business. They're targeting people that maybe are somewhat on the fence as to the severity of the pandemic itself as people that are questioning the responses that have been made on a state and federal level. One of the things that really stuck out to me watching that video is the richness of the visible symbols. And I wonder if, you know, the strongest visible symbol was simply gathering together in a form of protest that is recognizable to people where bodies are close to one another. You know, uh, any thoughts on that at all? I think that with this protest, I think that it was a, a sense of defiance and also a sense of a uniquely American individualistic spirit that I have a right to do what I want, government recommendations be damned, and I am going to exercise that right. In my opinion, it was a deliberate choice to to not social distance, to not wear a mask, because that in and of itself is a statement that I don't think that this is as concerning as people have made it out to be. I don't need to do what you're telling me to do because I live in a free country. Speaking to Joy made me realize how much of American forms of protest are dependent on bodies being able to physically assemble. There's something powerful about the collective union of people proclaiming their perspectives. There seems to be strength in visible numbers. The highly transmittable coronavirus makes gatherings questionable, though. When social distancing and quarantining are the best measures for reducing the spread of the virus, it seems obvious that collective protesting might not be the healthiest form of resistance at the moment. So the question emerged in, in my mind, what would protests look like that respected the CDC's guidelines of social distancing? Working through the archive, I encountered a form of protest that does just this. To begin, I found an uploaded video from Casey Rubel, artist-in-residence at Fordham University. Fortunately, I was able to speak with Casey about her contribution. Would you just take a moment, Casey, and just introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Casey Rubel, and I'm an artist-in-residence at Fordham University in New York. Normally, I teach painting and drawing, but this semester I was teaching an uh, art and activism course called Art Design and Politics. 
And can you give us just a quick introduction to how you came to be part of the, the Journal of the Plague Year project? Yeah, so I was teaching the Art Design and Politics course, and the thing that the students do in that course is get together into groups based on their own individual interests and then do a creative initiative that involves the public in some way. And so they were well into developing their projects when the pandemic hit. And of course, the public engagement component of their courses no longer was possible. The whole class needed to be reconceived. So at that point, I sort of started searching around, doing some research, and through word of mouth came upon the Journal of the Plague archive. I brought the idea to the students and they were all super enthusiastic. And so then they started contributing their own submissions in, you know, really sort of varied ways. Two quick questions about your work with it. How how has the experience been as far as using this as kind of a contributory assignment for students? And then is there any submissions that particularly kind of stand out to you that students have done that really kind of have a high resonance with the current moment? You know, one of the things that's so great about using the archive as a pedagogical tool, as you put it, is that it's, you know, it's a crowdsourced archive. So it accepts literally any kind of submission and that makes it very flexible. So I had a really, really wide range of submissions from different students. One that stood out immediately was a young woman who was in quarantine at her family's home. And she started going on walks around the neighborhood and saw that people were posting hand-drawn pictures of rainbows in their windows so that little kids in the neighborhood on walks could count the rainbows as they went through. So she started photographing them and put together this kind of taxonomy of those different kinds of rainbows. Another one that really stands out is another student. His mother was considered an essential worker and the job that she was at, you know, suddenly she was working these like incredible hours. And so she really was not seeing her family at all. And so instead of just going absent, the mom would leave notes around the house, you know, for the brothers and for her husband. And there were all these kind of like super positive cheerleading kind of notes. And he began photographing them and called the whole series notes from an essential worker. And another student did a really interesting video where his family business, it got closed down. And so he was applying for unemployment and had all of these problems applying for unemployment and did this brilliant video that just like walks you through exactly how complicated that process was. So that's just like a range of the different kinds of submissions that the students ended up contributing. Wow. Those are, those are all so interesting. Am I correct? You're not not in New Jersey, you're in New Orleans now, correct? Yes. So I have a good friend down in New Orleans and I've been working for a few years on an, my own creative practice, a project down here. And I had just flown down for spring break when the whole country went on lockdown. So my friend has an empty apartment down here. So it was really perfect. You know, I could stay here and teach remotely. You know, one of the things we're doing in the podcast is we're kind of highlighting different, different contexts and spaces across the States and probably across the world. Mm -hmm. What's the what's the sense in New Orleans at the moment? What's it feel like being there? 
a lot of people have asked me that and in a way it's sort of hard to answer because both my friend and I have been pretty strict on the quarantining. So I don't really get out that much. The times that I have been out, it seems like it's a whole range of things. You know, yesterday we went for a walk and saw a huge group of people playing soccer without face masks in really close proximity to each other. But then yeah, you know, at the supermarket earlier, like everybody was wearing a mask and really maintaining social distance. Certainly the curve has flattened here and it's going down actually. So I think that there's a sense of relief. The archive really can be kind of a, a rabbit hole. And I came across something that you personally uploaded that, that happens every night in your neighborhood. And I was hoping you could introduce us to that a bit. One of the very first nights that I was here, I was on the back porch with my friend. And all of a sudden, we heard this like incredible, beautiful cacophony of sound coming from the street, which was people banging pots and pans and you know utensils against empty bottles. We did a little bit of digging and found out that it was a casserolasso tradition. So my my understanding from looking it up is that the casserolasso is a protest tradition that dates at least to medieval times. A couple across the street had started in this neighborhood as a means of calling for more testing. And I guess that was March 13th was the first night that they did it. So now it occurs every single night at 9 p.m. sharp and, you know, different people in the neighborhood. And actually, you know, he's they, the couple has uh, involved people from across the country. After speaking with Casey, I had numerous questions about the casserolazo. I spoke with her neighbors, Jamie and Muffin Bernstein, the originators of the casserolazo in New Orleans. I am with Jamie and Muffin Bernstein in New Orleans. If you all could just take a few moments and introduce me to yourselves and to our listeners. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having us on, Terry. My name is Jamie Bernstein. I'm a musician here in New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm also a, a television and film actor. I wear a lot of hats. I'm Muffin Bernstein. I am an artist and a teacher. And we live here in mid-city New Orleans. What's it been like just generally in New Orleans during the pandemic? Have people responded in a positive way in our social distancing or has there been some resistance there? You know, there's the, the reaction has been sort of all over the clover. Initially, there was a lot of fear because we all had to go through Katrina about 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, we're all familiar with what happens when the systems we have in place as a civilized society collapse. I'm glad you brought up uh, Katrina in, in New Orleans maybe kind of has a modern historical precedent for kind of handling these types of catastrophes, although that's quite a bit different. Watching the government's response and specifically the government's response and handling of our low income population in New Orleans during Katrina, it made me very high alert for the situation that was rapidly approaching. In terms of the Katrina comparison, everyone initially got the same sort of jitters that we, we had, but the difference is there's really nowhere to go with this. In other words, like Katrina, you know, you could drive north. By the time you got to Alabama, most of, this, of the effects were negligible. But now there's just no place to escape to. You know, this thing is just so all-encompassing. Even if we wanted to, you know, to get away and have a vacation, that's just not a possible thing to do. Right. That's interesting because Katrina, it really is, it's all based on mobility. This thing is all about being immobile so that we can get through it together. Uh, that's a really interesting comparison there. 
And, and we were actually able to unify during Katrina and really come together as a culture and a, a group and a city. So this is I mean, really Katrina, weird. we could all gather together and feed each other and have that community experience and help each other clean out our houses. But there's nothing you can do for this. It's a really different paradigm for people to understand, especially people who are used to used to fighting things. We're, we're a kind of a culture of people who, you know, if there's a problem, we're going to fight it. Fighting coronavirus isn't an active thing, and it, it creates this really strange conundrum in your mind. How am, I, how am I banding together with my fellow citizens and fighting this by locking myself in my house and hiding from everybody? One of the things you said was you, there's nothing you can do. However, one of your neighbors told me there is something you all are doing that I find really interesting. And it's a short video uploaded to the archive. And I was just hoping you could introduce the audience to what you're doing. What was the inspiration? What's the initial response? Bring us into this thing. This thing all actually originated three years ago when we traveled to Spain. And at that time, the Catalans, the native people of that region of Spain, were uh, testing for their independence. We were in a restaurant about 1030 at night. And, uh, and all of a sudden, we heard all these pans being beat on. And all around us, it just sort of erupted. We walked outside and looked around. And we asked the waiter, what's going on? He said, this is what people are doing to protest not having their independence from Spain. So that first day, you know, we were talking about just how sort of help, helpless we felt. And there needed to be a way we could speak out and also a way that we could show solidarity with everybody. So we, we thought about that experience there in, in Spain and how the people were, were making their voice heard in this what we call a, a peaceful but not silent protest. And we decided uh, that we would do it. So that our, our next night of quarantine, we did it. And it was the first night of the Casa Relazo. And we're like, okay, we're going to do this every night till it's over. So then we decided that we would go live. And uh, then at nine o'clock, we try to encourage everybody all around the country who, who tune us in to join us in the Casa Relazo. So for one minute at nine o'clock central time each night, we bang on the pots and pans. You know, it's it's amazing. People from all over the country have joined in with their kids and, and you know, sort of made it a family thing. Some people who uh, were experiencing great frustrations were using it as a way to sort of vent their frustrations. So people have been tuning in and, and taking all sorts of different things from it. We started this, we're like, we need more testing. And we started banging out every night for more testing now. And I'll tell you what, tonight will be our 72nd show. And uh, we still are banging for the same thing. And it's unfortunate. Well, it, it's also scary that we started this thinking like, oh, you know, this is going to be fun. We're going to do it every night <sighs> protest. And now something that is is very w real in our situation. We know a lot of people in the communities. And when they first said that this attacks people with diabetes, heart problems, we knew that we would actually know quite a few people personally that would pass. And has that been the case? Have you all been been directly affected with your friends and family who have contracted it and passed away from it? Absolutely. More so our, our friends and mentors and elders in the community, you know. So we've certainly seen some of our personal elders go and then some of, of our sort of iconic elders. I, I happen to work at a historically black college and university. So I have students that have lost relatives. We had a retired security guard that passed away. Big Chief Ronald Lewis was someone I had worked with. I knew him directly. And but so he's sort of he's sort of like the when I was saying these elders in our community who we all really respect. That's like she's that's saying huge person. The, a big chief is somebody who's just respected by everyone for their art and for the way that they interact with people. 
And it's when you lose someone like that, the reverberations of losing someone like that are, are very difficult to quantify. Would you say that in a way your nightly protest is a is a, a cathartic reverberation? Definitely a, a form of catharsis. I mean, New Orleans is very much a society that celebrates funerals and we're not able to do these celebrations of life that we're used to doing. So it's definitely impacting the city in a very different way than some others. After hearing Jamie and Muffin's perspective of life in New Orleans in the Casarolazo, I checked back with Casey to garner her perspective of the recurring nightly protest. Do you jump in as well? Are you are you are you banging a glass bottle or a bowl or something? Yes, I have participated, but mostly it's just sort of a way to kind of like mark the end of the day for me on a personal level. You know, you work all day and then 9 p.m. the street erupts in sound. Right. And so when, when at night when this happens, whether you're participating or you just, you know, like that 9 p.m. kind of alert, whatever goes out, what kind of emotions and senses come to you in that moment? I think that one of the most powerful things about it is in this context where you can't see people, obviously you can't touch people, you know, what does protest look like when you can't congregate with a bunch of people? And so this is a way of feeling, you know, kind of intimately connected. Hearing is such an intimate sense, at least for me, and, you know, feeling that kind of shared experience, you know, in audio just like makes you feel connected to people even if you can't see them or be near them. This episode spotlights two different kinds of protest, one taking place in California and the other in New Orleans. The protest in California is an opportunity for some to vocalize dissatisfaction with mandatory lockdown measures by physical assembly. The physical assembly is an opportune time to visually symbolize a resistance to the proposed safety guidelines of the CDC. In New Orleans, the nightly protest looks different by using reverberations to announce grief and anxiety in this pandemic moment. The casserolazo serves as a daily catharsis when feelings of helplessness abound. This protest is not the standard American version of protesting through assembly. Instead, the New Orleans protest that has grown in this neighborhood and broadcasted through Facebook nightly draws on international and historical forms to proclaim dissatisfaction with governmental responses. The Casarolazo begins to answer Casey's question, what does protest look like when you can't congregate? This protest creatively utilizes objects to speak their truth. Both types of protests tend toward creating conversations, rallying support, and bringing attention to what is occurring during the pandemic. As shown, protests during the pandemic can take various forms, but most display dissatisfaction with the current conditions wanting, in some instances, to return to normal, and in other instances, to return to something better than pre-pandemic normal. These protests add to the rich history of protesting activities in American history, and the Journal of the Plague Year wonderfully captures them both. Many thanks to our guests in this episode, 
Joey Dorian, Casey Rubel, Muffin, and Jamie Bernstein. This episode was hosted by Terry Shoemaker, produced and edited by Amelia Michelson, graphic design by Carson Shoemaker, administered by Eli Tabot, and music by Quentin Daly. This podcast for the Plague Year is a complement to the Journal for the Plague Year, a project of Catherine O'Donnell and Mark Tabot, both faculty at Arizona State University's School for Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies.